I'm Howard Parker, and welcome to Bluegrass Stories. Now in its 48th year, the Delaware Valley Bluegrass Festival continues to showcase the best of bluegrass, old-time and traditional music. It's presented by the nonprofit Brandywine Friends of Old Time Music. In this podcast, its chairman, Carl Goldstein, discusses the history of bluegrass in the Delaware Valley, launching a bluegrass festival with Ralph Stanley and Bill Monroe as partners. Talks about bluegrass radio and managing a festival for five decades. Let's join Katie Daly in conversation with Carl Goldstein. Well, I actually grew up in in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is uh, only about half hour from from Wilmington, where I moved later in life. And my immediate surroundings didn't have that much music involved. Although, uh, I I will tell you that um, (laughs) what what happened when I was about 12 or 13 years old had a bit of an impact on me. As as some folks may know, Bill Haley of Bill Haley and the Comets fame, uh, they were from Chester, Pennsylvania. And uh, when I was about that old, I, I walked up one of the streets in Chester to a radio station, WPWA. And Bill Haley and his then band, The Saddlemen, were playing country music uh, mm-hmm. on the air. They were recording something to be played back the next day. And I walked in and listened. That I, I, I now realize later in life that had a significant impact on me. It was my first real exposure to country music and to radio, in fact. So that was kind of interesting that that happened to me. Bill Haley and the Comets, right? That's correct. Later he changed his name to Bill Haley and the Comets. And, uh, you know, one, one of the real first attributed now to one, one of the real first creators of, of rock and roll as, as we came to know it. Uh, of course, Rock Around the Clock was monstrous. I guess that was 1956, a few years mm-hmm. after my experience. But yeah, that was, that was kind of the beginning. But, but you are right in general that this area, uh, around Wilmington, extending into southeastern Pennsylvania and northwestern Maryland, and even a little bit into South Jersey, was kind of a hotbed of, of, of folks who moved up to this area from western North Carolina and southwestern Virginia during the Depression to find work. And uh, families that many of our listeners will be acquainted with, like the Lundis and the Paisleys, uh, Olabel Reed and her family, uh, the McCurries, many others, you know, found their way into this general area. So, uh, you know, on first blush, it doesn't look like an area that would have an awful lot of great uh, southern uh, traditional music involved, but it, it really became that way. And a lot of them migrated toward Baltimore. Uh, during the 50s and played in the clubs down there, uh, including Ted and including Dell and many others. So, yeah, this, this was, music was all around us uh, growing up. And when did you uh, become aware of? Well, when, when, I, when I was in my, my late teens in, in college and maybe in the first year or two, maybe even of law school, I was, I was listening to a lot of the clear channel stations like WSM, WOWO in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, WBT in Charlotte at night because you could get these clear channel stations and a lot of them had country music then and I was also listening to a lot of R&B and soul music coming out of Philadelphia uh, and both of those things had a big impact on me and, and I always thought even back then that there was a pretty significant relationship between them. They were all very soulful, very rootsy and, and um and, and I, you know, my journey from listening to blues and to early country was not a huge trip, not a huge trip. And right. so I, 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 I grew up listening to both of those things. And I think that made an impact on me in those years. 
And also, uh, in later years, you picked up a radio show yourself. I did, uh, and that was uh, after, for instance, we started the Bluegrass Festival and one of our other festivals, but in, in the, about 1977, I suppose it was, there were students from the University of Delaware who knew I had somewhat of a decent library of, of early country and bluegrass, and they would come and borrow records from me and kept saying, well, why don't you come down and do a show? Why don't you come down and do a show? And I was very reluctant for a while. And finally, I said, well, you know, if one of the students can do it with me, I'll try it. And then I, of course, began to love it and have done it since. And uh, people can tune in on Saturday mornings from 10 to noon. The show's called Fire on the Mountain, and it is at uh, 91.3 WVUD, or you can stream online at WVUD.org. And it's bluegrass, old-time, and traditional country. And what would we do without public radio for our roots music? Boy, is that the truth. And it seems uh, truer every year, uh, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that a lot of the stations that did feature it, that weren't necessarily either public radio or, or local college stations, uh, haven't continued to do that because of the pressure, I guess, of commercial interests. But you are right. That's where it rests now. And a good way for you to remember those call letters, just think of the Voices of the University of Delaware, WVUD, Saturday mornings, 10 to noon with Carl and Fire on the Mountain. When did you or did you ever pick up playing an instrument yourself or perform? Well, actually in law school, I hesitate to say, uh, both my friend Sheldon Sandler, who was also one of the founders of the Brandywine Friends of Old Time Music, and I began to try to learn both um, me on guitar and he playing banjo. And we did it a lot and went to some local folk and those kind of things to listen to music. But, you know, it, 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 we spent much too much time doing that. And, and I think that as much as it might have affected our grades, it lowered the grades of other people who had to listen to us more. <laughs> so so we, we came out pretty well on the academic side. <laughs> And uh, do you and Shell still get together and play? Yeah, occasionally. Shell and my wife Judy uh, are in a group called Tater uh, Tater Patch, excuse me, and uh, and they play a, gr a great deal more than I do now these days. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's get back to uh, some of these. Did you? Go what venues did you go to? Uh, you mentioned Baltimore, and you mentioned Ola Bell Reed, and she was, of course, down in that Maryland area at uh, what was the park? Well, since she and, and Bud Reed, her, her husband, were in two parks, both in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania and down in Maryland. One was New River Ranch, right. and the other was Sunset Park. And Sunset right. Park was only about 20 minutes from where I live then and where I live now. Mm -hmm. So I spent most of my Sundays, if not all of them, during the summertime out at Sunset Park. And they would have, I think, every significant bluegrass musician you can mention, and many of the great country artists of the time, including folks like Hank Williams, who I unfortunately wasn't able to, to see there. But uh, they all passed through Sunset Park uh, during those years. And that, that was a, a huge part of what I was able to listen to during those years. Well, describe that venue for me. I, I've heard it described as just having little benches to sit on, or you, did you bring your own lawn chair? What was, what was that experience like? Well, you described it pretty well. There were just a series of benches. Uh, the sound system was kind of like out of the back of a 1947 Dodge, but it, 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 kind, of, it kind of did the job. And, uh, and it was a wonderful atmosphere. Uh, it was an almost entirely rural, rural folks from around Oxford, West Grove, and that area of Pennsylvania. And they would come out and spend an entire Sunday. 
uh, in addition to each of the groups doing three shows a day, and Alex and Olabel and the New River Boys and Girls were the lead act for many years there. They would have a second act and then a major act. But the park itself was a real amusement park. It had, you know, those penny tossing and those kind of things. And it was just a pleasure. People picnicked there and had a great time and would sit and listen to the thing. And there was a tremendous amount of picking out in the parking lot, which was literally true, the parking lot. And uh, there were legendary people who met there uh, over time. But, yeah, Shell and I and many others would go out there and play on a Sunday afternoon and then go listen to the stage acts. Sort of sounds like a template for a modern-day bluegrass festival. Yeah, it kind of was in many ways. Um, I guess it was uh, a little bit more homey uh, in, in the atmosphere. But, yeah, it, it certainly was uh, very much like what we, we eventually came to, to, to find as bluegrass festivals. And one thing that uh, always surprised me is um, that, that it was all right for you to take your tape recorder and set it right up on the stage and record the whole show. Yep, they welcomed it. And, you know, people like Mike Seeger, for instance, who was one of the folks who really helped us a lot in our early years, particularly with our Brandywine Mountain Music Convention, which was kind of a parallel interest of us to the Bluegrass Festival. Mike recorded a huge number of those things, both at New River Ranch and Sunset Park, and they found their way into recordings over time and preserved an awful lot of great music. Let me just tell you that during, during the time that we've been doing this festival, we also thought that we could do something with the first-generation great performers in, uh, in, in traditional music, uh, separate and apart from the bluegrass scene. And for 20 years, we did this, uh, and it was a really important part of our, uh, our journey, I think. And, and that, that had a huge range of stuff. Our first concern was the old-time first-generation musicians, almost all of whom are gone now. Tommy Jarrell, Kyle Creed, all these people from the Southern Mountains, whose music really influenced bluegrass tremendously over time. We had all of them. But I just want to mention a couple of things here. Uh, our, our variety there extended, for instance, we used to have themes. And one time we did the country music radio theme. And we had Bob Will's original Texas Playboys pay for us. We had Jerry Rivers, Don Helms, Bob McNatt, Hillis Buttram, and it was just wonderful. And, and that was just to show the depth, the breadth, you know, of country music at the time. And another year we did Texas. We had Bob Will's original Texas Playboys. We had Leon Roush, Leon McCullis. We had Eldon Shamblin. I mean, it was just magnificent. So we had that other line all the time and very much interested in that. And I just didn't want to go through the conversation without at least mentioning that part of, our, uh, of what we've done over the years. And uh, is that still active? No. No, we ended that about 1990. Um, mm -hmm. the, the audience for that, they used, they used to come, you know, in there uh, and set up tents and uh, a lot of, uh, uh, I was going to say hippies, but, you know, people of the time who <laughs> were a lot more earthy. And then over time, you know, that, that kind of changed. And, and by the time we got to 1990, they were, it was a little more difficult for them to come with their young kids. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I understand. Okay, and it was, well, in very, it was in a very rural setting. It wasn't nearly as friendly, for instance, as the bluegrass setting. We had it down in a, uh, in, in a woods, you know, a very rural, beautiful setting and stuff. So it, it, uh, it kind of ran us out about 1990. But we're very proud of what we accomplished. We have records of it and that kind of stuff. So. Were you, at that time, involved with the Brandywine Friends, or you were a founder of that? Tell me more about that. Yeah, uh, we founded the Brandywine Friends in 1971, and for many years before that, uh, Shell particularly and I would travel down to North Carolina and Virginia to all the old fiddlers' conventions down there, and we would go to three or four or sometimes more each summer into the fall, 
And after a while, we figured, you know, we're doing all this traveling, hearing all this great music. Why can't we have it here? And in many ways, although Boston and New York didn't have an active, a real active scene, it did have some, and it had a very active folk scene. You know, we were in a perfect position for folks coming up from the South or from Washington to get to New York. It's exactly halfway. We thought we could attract some musicians that way. So uh, we founded the Brandywine Friends, and, and uh, I became somewhat uh, friendly with Ralph Stanley um, because I would go to almost everything I could find. The Stanley brothers were a huge influence on me. And Ralph and I became some friends, somewhat friends. And he called me and, and said, would you like to host a, a bluegrass festival that Bill and I, as he said it, <laughs> would like to sponsor? And it took me a second to register that in my head. <laughs> and I said, well, of course. So he and Bill Monroe were, were the first partners with us in 1972 for the wow. first what was then called the Delaware Bluegrass Festival. It was in Delaware at the time before we moved. And for the first three years, they provided all the talent, and we provided the location and the advertising, etc. And then we would have an arrangement where we would get some of the proceeds for that. But they were amazing years, and he brought with him you know, all kinds of great people. Uh, Larry Sparks and the Marshall family and uh, just a host of wonderful people each year. And then we were allowed to add a little bit, and we add a little bit of flavor to it, a little bit of old-time stuff. And we had Alex and Olabel there, for instance, and we had Mike Seeger with the Strange Creek Singers. (laughs) But uh, So, yeah, it was a very nice arrangement. Um, Well, it does sound like a good one because you and Shell probably had absolutely no what today you can get a college degree in event planning you had no experience like that, did you? No, none whatsoever. Uh, and, and, and you learned this from, Ra- I guess, Ralph and Bill knew that business forwards and backwards. Yeah, they did. Um, of course, and, and, you know, we knew the area a bit, so that helped, helped a bit uh, over time. Um, and, and then, actually, uh, it, it, this wasn't directly part of your question, but the, the fourth year they both decided they were going to start their own festivals at their home places on, on uh, Labor Day weekend, and it was Lester Flatt who stepped in and performed oh. at what would have been a little bit less than his normal charge to keep it going. Right. And, um, and so that we really owe Lester an awful lot, too. I know I mentioned Ralph and Bill, but he also was very significant in, in keeping the festival alive at that point. And he came how many years? Uh, he would come like every other year for a while, uh, and so did Ralph and Bill. After their first couple of years, they kind of folded on, on uh, Labor Day weekend. And then Ralph and Bill also came back, and we would alternate them every other year as well. Well, there's a famous story, really, that uh, Lester Flatt was a part of, because one year he brought you a very young musician, uh, Marty Stewart. Katie, that was our very first year. That, really? That was, yes, that was 1972, and Marty was 13 years old, and he came with him on his very first trip away from home with Lester, whom he met in Nashville, and drove up on the bus, and that was his first festival ever. And, he, and there is a very iconic picture uh, that's been around that Carl Fleischauer's took. It was on the cover of Bluegrass Unlimited a couple times and elsewhere of, of Ralph, of rather Bill and Ralph Stanley and, uh, I, you know, a lot of uh, Jim and Jesse, a lot of the really greats, along with uh, Marty Stewart, 13 years old, standing right next to Bill. But that was the first time he ever played uh, on stage with, at, a, mm-hmm. at a Bluegrass festival, that is. Uh, one of the big thrills uh, in recent years was I think it was, what, 40 years to the day uh, that he first appeared, and, and young uh, Ryan Paisley was there and ended up on stage uh, with Marty. That was a very um, 
very sentimental and a beautiful performance. It gave us all goosebumps. And, and uh, uh, Marty, who uh, was you know, so gracious about that, and at the time, uh, Ryan was 13, exactly the same age that Marty had been when he stood on that stage. So mm-hmm. it was really a very nice moment. And, and Marty has been a really good friend to the festival. We're, we're really appreciative of Marty. So when did you move and why did you move the venue? We moved in 1990 because the area around uh, where we had the site in Delaware, which had been a nice rural area, was beginning to be developed very heavily. Mm-hmm. And the surrounding was just not compatible, with, we thought, with a bluegrass setting. And we fortunately had a friend who actually was a musician over in uh, New Jersey, Ivan Sexton, who found this, uh, this beautiful location, the Salem County Fairgrounds, which was actually used as a fairgrounds over the rest of the summer for our location. And it's, it's absolutely perfect, we think, for a festival surrounded by beautiful farmland, and it's a, a very nice setting. And that, the first, 1990 was the first year we, we were there. And, and that was kind of momentous as well, because th- that was the year we had Bill Monroe and Doc Watson do a set together. So there was a lot, lot of memorable about that first uh, festival at the Salem County Fairgrounds. Well, let's talk about uh, who puts this festival on. Uh, organization the called the Brand- Friends of Old Time Music. That's correct. And, and that was the original uh, organization that we formed back in 1971 for the purpose of presenting music, and not just the, the festivals, which of course came about because of Ralph's call, but also local concerts. And we do that uh, every year as well. Uh, we have concerts uh, throughout the, the fall and the spring. Uh, we also have been um, involved in music in schools, presenting bluegrass and traditional music in schools over time. Uh, we have partnered with Winterthur Museum, with the National Endowment for the Arts, with the Delaware Arts Council and others for presenting music over time as well. Mm-hmm. And the and Grand Opera House in Wilmington. We had a, a couple of very nice uh, events with them as well. Uh, speaking of uh, teaching kids in schools, you have a great uh, Bluegrass Kids Academy. Yes, we do. Need to thank uh, Ira Gitlin and Steve Field for, for their guidance in that. Uh, Ira does a lot of them across the country, and mm-hmm. he has put together a very nice program for us. And that, that's always a wonderful thing to see, those little kids up there playing traditional instruments. Uh, you just can't help but think that the, the future's in pretty good hands. If someone is coming to the festival, uh, how far in advance do they have to sign the kids up for that? Well, we like to do it at least a month in advance, but they, they make exception. If they still have spaces open, you can do it within a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can go on the website, which is uh, DelawareValleyBluegrass.org, and sign up right through the web- website. You have a board of directors of 16 people? That's right. That's, that's, a, right. that's a huge number of people to get in agreement to what acts are going to come. Well, that's true, and it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting process. Uh, we usually create like a master list, and everybody kind of has their, their own ideas. Uh, I hope that my contribution is to insist that there be variety, and, and I, I try to enforce that every year, that we need you know, not just the great traditional bluegrass acts, but some old-time stuff and some related music, because I think that people, even who are very traditional-minded, would not, do not want to sit there and listen to the same sound over and over and over. I think it's not only not fair to the audience, I don't think it's fair to the performers. So, you know, we always have a nice mix. We have some contemporary bluegrass, some traditional bluegrass. We have some old time. And then we go out a bit each year, too. We've had, 
Western Swing, Asleep at the Wheel. We've had Tuba Skinny, a great Dixieland band from New Orleans who's coming back this year. So that's maybe my contribution is just to hammer at that and, and make sure we get, you know. But everybody has really good ideas, and obviously we only have about but 13 or 14 slots, so everybody's idea can't be on there. But uh, that's the way we do. We just hammer it out and talk it out. Well, uh, let's give credit to the audience uh, with this variety. I've never seen, I have seen at other festivals when uh, an act comes on that might not be to their taste, sort of mass exodus. You know, if somebody's too progressive or too traditional. The uh, Delaware Valley audience sits and enjoys all the acts. I think it's a bit of a learning experience. I'll give you a great example of how that happened. The first year we had Natalie McMaster, who mm-hmm. is, uh, is a uh, Canadian uh, Celtic uh, fiddler, who is a magnificent, one of the best there, who's a dancer. But she does that, that northern uh, Canadian French style music, right? So she comes on stage and she's got some percussion behind her and she gets out there with her fiddle. And as you said, her first time there, the audience starts to drift away. So a lot of them, they make it like, I don't know, 15, 18 steps, (laughs) and they hear this fiddle, you know, and they turn around and look for a while, and they come back. The second show was packed (laughs) because word got out, you got to see this woman, you got to hear this music. And and I think over time, I think they've expected that we're going to present something a little bit different, but something that is always what we think is within the bounds of, of traditional uh, traditional music. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think the audience has been great. They've really adjusted to this, and not only that, I think they expect it from us now. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Tuba Skinny was a big surprise a couple years ago, and I'm looking forward to their return. I had not been familiar at all with the sort of street musicians of uh, New Orleans, and boy, are they interesting. Yeah, I love them. I, I, I heard them, um, Erica Lewis, who's the singer with them, and uh, Shay Cohen, who was kind of the lead musician there. I, I got in touch with them early on and been trying for a year or two to get them to come up and finally convince them. There, there are nine of them. And, um, and we did it. And you know, a lot of, not just you, other people were a little apprehensive. What are you going to have Dixieland on your stage? But they were, I mean, I think that's one of the best receptions I've heard in years to their music. Mm-hmm. And, and then I tried again last year, and they couldn't do it, but I finally convinced them to come back again this year. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, too. Well, Carl, if someone were to tune in Saturday mornings to your radio show, are they going to get the same kind of variety? Yes, I, I insist. I play a lot of early country music as well from the 50s, and I play some old-time music, uh, and I play some, uh, some traditional and some contemporary bluegrass. I, li- I like to mix it uh, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of proud of the fact that we've developed an audience for that, too. Mm-hmm. And you said you have an extensive uh, record collection. About how many discs do you have? Oh, I don't know. It's probably bordering on 5,000 now. I don't, I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> okay. but it's, 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 it's enough that I'm beginning to not know where things are. I'll put it that oh. way. <laughs> do you lug them in from home every week? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, that's, and, and I still play LPs, as a matter of fact. I'm very glad that our station, which, which really has state-of-the-art facilities, uh, has never gotten rid of the turntables. So, mm-hmm. of course, now that they're somewhat back in fashion, it's probably a good idea. But right. I, I still do play some vinyl as well on the show. Okay, well, don't leave that vinyl in the hot car in the summer. <laughs> no, 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 nor the dog. <laughs> or the dog. <laughs> or the right. dog. Yeah. No, don't do that. Well, uh, I, I'm very impressed that you uh, 
picked up these event skills, and I guess if you want to do something badly enough, you'll learn it. Uh, your organization learned it so well that in what year was it? You got IBMA Event of the Year. Uh, that's a good question. I guess it was, 2000, was it 2017, perhaps. I think that's right. Um, yeah. I thought it was 16, but well, I'll maybe take it was. your word for it. What changes have you seen in the music over the years? Well, um, I, I guess it's, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint uh, the change in the music. Um, the, the, the change in the music, I suppose, is that there are a greater number of people who are becoming a little bit more a- a- adventurous with the style. Uh, which pleases some and may not please others, but it does get young people involved in the music, which is a very good thing. And I think there are younger people now in greater numbers playing the music than before. Mm-hmm. And I think we are starting to see some younger people at the festival, which is also a good thing, and, and more families. Um, so that's, that's a really uh, encouraging trend, I think. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm also a little bit discouraged about the, the lack of coverage by, by the media. It's kind of hard to get that out. But fortunately, we have a really strong community. And, and I think that even though there are fewer, I think the voices like yours, for instance, Katie, and, and you're in Howard with the podcast, for instance, but a lot of others are, are reaching the people that we want to reach. Um, and, and, you know, obviously social media has been very helpful in that. If we didn't have social media now, I think it would be much more difficult for all of us to connect all the people who have this common interest because we are spread out over a wider geographical area. It's not like putting on a pop concert and you know you're going to get 5,000 people from within one city. You know, you have to get people from a greater distance, and I think social media is doing that. So I think between the bigger difference for me, I think, is younger people getting involved and social media making it a little more cohesive for us to get an audience and to appreciate what's going on in the field. Well, I'll agree with you. I, I always say the big difference from when I first got involved in the music is uh, technology, which I now would include streaming media that people all over the world can listen to your show. Uh, as, as it used to be, you just had to sort of be in the parking lot to hear some of these radio mm-hmm. stations. And, um, and of course, it, it changes the way people can record. They don't have to be in the same country, let alone in the same studio to, you know, send things in. But for me, it was the role of women in the music. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I neglected to even mention that. But yeah, absolutely right. And, and we, we, I think, uh, tried to accommodate that as soon as possible. We had Alison Krauss when she was 17, for instance, at our mm. festival. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Now it's, it's wonderful. It's, I think it's almost 50-50 in many cases with great women, great women musicians great women musicians yeah. well we'd like to see more of them more young people and let's not forget the us older people too uh we plunk our money down at the gate so all are welcome yep, yep. absolutely <laughs> to come and enjoy all right well this year the festival is as always labor day weekend and labor day this weekend uh this year is uh, august 30 and 31 and september 1st right and do you have a list of the performers, or should I uh, mention them? Uh, I can have a list. We can both mention them if you like. But okay. uh, we have Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder. Uh, we've had and Ricky what from, a year he has had, Carl. Inducted both into the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. I don't know if that's ever been done before. I, I don't know, but, but he is certainly deserving of it. And, and he's a good example of people who have uh, really have a serious uh, connection with traditional music and, and his 
forays into country music brought a great traditional sound into country music for those years mm-hmm. back in the 80s. But he's mm-hmm. returned to his roots and just, the, you know, the best, one of the best bands out there, no question. Uh, of course, I'm always happy to see the Gibson Brothers. Yes. And uh, they're there at, in, with their Bluegrass Act Friday night. That's right. That's on Friday as well. And, and there's, there's, there's a great success story. You know, I mean, it, it, t- it took years you know, behind the scenes, but once they burst, they've really become one, one of the lead acts, and they're, they're great, the two of them. Speaking of a, a hot act, Becky Buller Band will be there. She will, and she's been there before, and she's so delightful. And what a great songwriter and fiddler. I mean, talk about triple threat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there it she, is. Can, she can do it all. Danny Paisley and uh, Southern Grass will be there. Danny's um, our house band. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, he and his father... Of all the 40, what, seven years now, I've only missed one year. We've had them every, every year since the beginning. Of course, in the beginning, he was with, his father was with Ted Lundy. But right. uh, only one year in all those times did either he or his father not play there. Now, I don't know much about this. Uh, looks like a string band, Jacobs Ferry uh, Stragglers. Yeah, they're from uh, the Pittsburgh area. And uh, both uh, Howard Parker and I were very impressed with them at IBMA. And they mm-hmm. do a nice variety. They do some swing music a little bit of country stuff, but they are acoustic, and they do a lot of bluegrass and old-time, too. Very nice mix of styles, good voices, good instruments. And stepping at the junction. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, that, that is uh, a great, uh, they call themselves a percussive dance ensemble, and they mm-hmm. do um, uh, what, what you would term um, you know, traditional country dance kind of steps, uh, and they have um, uh, accompanied then this time, Charm City Junction, which may be the best old-time band playing today. Patrick McAvino, who is now the fiddler with Daly and Vincent. Right. Uh, Just got is, married is, last weekend. He did. He did. He is, he is uh, one of their leaders, along with Brad Kolodner, and they play a really dynamic form of old-time music. And they're mm-hmm. going to accompany the, uh, the Footworks Progressive Dance Ensemble. So that's going to be a great show on Friday. Okay, then coming up on Saturday, the Traveling McCurries, right. uh, Darren and Brooke Aldridge, mm-hmm. uh, John Reichman and the Jaybirds, uh, right. again, Danny Paisley and Southern Grass, and Tuba Skinny, who we've already talked about, but uh, sort of one I'm not familiar with, is, but has really got some good buzz, Appalachian Roadshow. Uh, I'll tell you, um, you know, our, our hiring of, of bands is collective, However, when I saw them at IBMA for the very first time, it was one of the first shows they ever put on. I just went up to Barry Abernathy and said, you're coming. <laughs> Whatever I have to do to that group, you're coming. <laughs> that was right. an amazing, amazing performance. I, I think more than anything else, I mean, there are all kinds of great people this year, but I am so looking forward to their show. And they're doing one sole set, so there'll be some kind of a theme to it. And I think it has to do with the development of Appalachian music, perhaps through the Depression. I'm not really sure. But it's going to be magnificent, and they have such a, a great combination with Daryl Webb and just some fine, fine musicians in that group. Okay, that's Saturday, and on Sunday, uh, you start the show off in the morning, early morning, with the performances from the Kids Academy, mm-hmm. and then around noon, it switches over to uh, folks like Balsam Range, the Kathy Callick Band, uh, Greg Cahill's Special Consensus, mm-hmm. uh, Slocan Ramblers, uh, Tuesday Mountain Boys, and right. the Onlys. Yeah, they're old-time music from out in Seattle. Seattle is another one of those hot spots for old-time music with a lot of great, great bands. And right. actually, Shel Sandler kind of brought that band to the, uh, to, the, to the board, and they're really terrific. So it's going to be a really nice dose of some old-time music there on Sunday. 
And uh, Kathy Callick coming all the way in from the San Francisco, Oakland, California area. We love her, and we've had her a number of times, and I'm really glad they can do it. And that is a big cross-country trip, but she seems to like it as much as we do. And what, do they pick up work in the area so that uh, it becomes uh, an affordable trip for them? Yeah, I think so. I think they've got two or three other jobs lined up. I'm not sure where, but I, obviously I, I'm i never one that pre- prevents any of them from flowing wherever they want to within the time that they're here. So I think they've found some other work, and uh, it'll be great, great to have them. That is a great thing that you said, because a lot of venues have, what, a 50-mile radius? You can't play... Yeah, or 100. I have to be honest, there are one or two occasions when a lead act, uh, and there's a long story behind this, I do have to put a restriction on, but for 99% of them, if they can find other work, God bless them. Mm-hmm. Well, Kathy Callick, you're in for a treat on Sunday. Warmest, one of the warmest voices uh, yep. in, in this uh, music uh, today. And she's been around a long time. So Brandywine Friends has a very interesting partnership with East Tennessee State University. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Uh, a couple of years ago, we, we realized that we were accumulating an awful lot of fairly valuable information over these 47, 48 years. And uh, we thought that all of that ought to be preserved somewhere so that there would be access to it for people who wanted to do research or just wanted to enjoy it. Uh, so we partnered with uh, East Tennessee State University and particularly Dan Boner, who was very helpful with us there, uh, in addition to uh, Howard Parker and Todd Denton of our board. And we have donated to them all of the recordings that we've made over all these years. And hopefully there they will be preserved and enjoyed for years to come. Now that's a massive amount of work cataloging all of that. But uh, So Brandywine Friends is not only promoting the music, but uh, active in preserving it. And uh, kudos to all of you for that. Well, thank you. We're, we're trying to do the best we can. One way, you know, that festivals can uh, contribute more than just a, a weekend to this uh, kind of music is, is by doing things like that. Not only the Kids Academy, but uh, preserving, uh, yeah. promoting and preserving the music. Uh, Brandywine Friends uh, has done a terrific job of that, and I salute all of you. Well, thank you. Obviously, we did it. It's been all volunteer uh, uh, the, the entire time, and uh, it, it, it's been a, a work of hundreds and hundreds of people over all these years, and every one of them did it because of their love of the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we could just go on uh, East Tennessee State University and look up uh, their archives, or how, how would we find that? Do you know? Uh, I, I guess just go online for East Tennessee State University, and, and you can find it. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, Carl, thank you so much for spending part of your uh, morning with us, and uh, I look forward to, I guess I will see you Labor Day, and look forward to spending time uh, there, and and I hope folks will come out. uh, Thank you. I I hope so, too, but I don't want to end this without showing my appreciation for you and all that you've done for this music. You know, all all of us who listened to you all those years on the radio and what you're doing now with the podcast and your being our MC, uh, you've had tremendous influence on us, and and we appreciate it. That was Katie Daly with Carl Goldstein, chairman of the Brandywine Friends of Old Time Music. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud and it's available on iTunes, Google Podcasts. KatieDaily.com and BluegrassStories.com Stay tuned for more podcasts and thanks for listening.